There was these exits that are happening all around me and I figured, well, I'm as smart as that person. I'm working just as hard. And it was really emotionally taxing because I was, my, by my own measure and comparing to others, I was behind. In an attempt to diversify a successful office equipment business, Ted Bradshaw ended up losing millions of dollars. He built a video game company that was beaten by the mobile gaming revolution. He built a home rental company that was beaten by a supplier who went bankrupt, and then invested in building a novel technology to produce a radioisotope called technium when he knew nothing about nuclear technology. Ted's story is one filled with a desperate need to build something innovative, coupled with an entrepreneurial desire to prove himself and diversify his business skills and financial interests. The more Ted's business partners helped him diversify their core business, the further Ted found himself from the daily operations of the home office supply cash cow, which led to a nasty exit and a lifetime of business lessons. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer, so remember, it's not over until it's over. Hey, and welcome to the latest episode of It's Not Over. With me today is Ted Bradshaw. Ted, how are you? I'm doing great, Nick. I am thrilled to see you and be here today. Amazing. I'm excited to hear your story. So let's dive right in and give the listeners and myself some context. What business are we going to be talking about? What industry are you in? What do you do? Tell us some high-level stuff, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty. Yeah, well, Nick, you know what? I think as I was as I was preparing, I, and you asked the question, or you told me, okay, we're going to talk about what business. I've got three that we could probably choose from. So it's sort of like the rule of threes, and I, I would love to talk a little bit about all of them if I could, because I think there's actually a pattern that has emerged. So if you're if you're cool with that. I can, I can kind of... I'm down with that. As long as we're going to track that pattern through, it sounds enticing. We've done a couple of episodes with serial or serialized, obsessive entrepreneurs, whatever you want to call them, habitual entrepreneurs, broken humans, whatever. Yeah, so cool. Why don't you tell us about, yeah, the broken part, definitely. Eh? So tell us about the first business. And then as the pattern emerges, you can give us more information on that. No problem. Uh, let's go. Yeah. Okay. So I am a serial entrepreneur, like you mentioned, I've had, well, what I'm not counting now seven, I suppose, but the, the first three, <clears throat> I think this was part of the problem, Nick, when I, when I first, uh, my first three businesses were successful. There was an, an off, uh, an office equipment distribution business that led into a software company that was successful that, uh, that led into a merger with uh, an IT managed services company. And so thinking, well, we can do no wrong. This is easy. Business is easy. And we had those early successes. So the business that first failed spectacularly was also in, in software and technology. It was in a video game industry. And I don't know if you, it was right or it would have been right around the, I was looking at my years earlier and somewhere around 08. So 2008, 2009. You're extremely young looking gentleman, so you might that might be complete like Ted. I was still in in primary school, but no, no, I've I at that point, 2008 and nine, I had already had six business failures, raised my first angel seed angel fund for a company, and given that money back because I didn't know okay. what to do with it. So I was deep in the the mess already. Okay, so you'll appreciate this. The 07 was a private equity exit. 
and going through all that stuff. And, and But what we saw is, is our business, the software company that, that we had was in the education space and le- le- legitimate education, helping students do better. And the company was actually called Students Achieve. And we saw though, around the same time that we were developing our software, there was this virtual world concept. If you remember Second Life, remember that whole phenomenon, yep. which now virtual reality is it's like literally gonna be a second life. At the time, these virtual worlds are popping up and we were watching another kids related game just go crazy. And it was called Club Penguin. And it was acquired by Disney for with earnouts and so forth. It was close to three quarters of a billion. And so we figured, okay, well, let's education's great, but entertainment seems to trump that. So we um, we developed this this on this virtual world themed around hockey. I'm a Canadian, so of course it's hockey. But we had this idea that it was it was we we're gonna create all these other sports from it. And we had the funding. You talked about angel investors. We we had we had our investors lined up, we had wins behind us. And what ended up happening, Nick, is we we were we were scaling really, really well. I think we got ourselves up to four hundred thousand uniques a month and climbing. We had a strategic partnership with the National Hockey League that was absolutely brilliant. So if you think of premier soccer and what it would take to license to work with 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 the league, the royalties it would entail, the the, the all of the probably paying up front. We didn't have to do any of that. We, we had this really great relationship with them. So we figured this was just gonna be a matter of time. What we failed to recognize was the, the National Hockey League's brand aged quite a bit older than our game. And so even though we had this amazing reach, we weren't reaching the right people. And so we steadily watched as we, we, we had a, this before COVID, of course, before virtual businesses, all the rest of it, we had it going on. We had a virtual worldwide team doing this. And, and, we, and we thought it was just a matter of more advertising, the cost of acquisition being whatever, 50 cents, and we're selling average users, we're monetizing in a buck. We, we literally saw that within months start to, to flip-flop where our, cost of acquisition was doubling and our monetization average revenue per user was was having at the same time. And one of the fundamental reasons is this is right when we were, I remember we were sitting in this independent game developers conference in Marina Del Rey in California. And it was in the basement of this Marriott hotel and it was very nondescript, but cool. Like one of these cool, like this is where all the cool developers are. And I stumbled over to this desk and it was, it was just the nondescript desk with this weird cheesy banner behind it of a picture of a dog. And I asked the person sitting there, I said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm the HR director of Share the Company in a Moment. And, and I said, oh, this is great. And I, good for you. Good for you for, for showing up here and trying. What, what are you trying to do? She said, well, we need to hire 800 people. <laughs> whoa. Like, like, whoa whoa okay well that's pretty cool Who, who's what's the company and it was the company is called zynga <laughs> just a little company called zynga yeah. just a little company called zynga 
And Nick, I and one of the breakouts that was happening was there's still money to be made in in in, in the the app store. I'm like, what do you mean still mm. money to be made? It was this crazy infection. <laughs> so long story short, we got we absolutely got sideswiped by Angry Birds as everything moved mobile. Our game was server based, mm. and it was it was watching almost daily where we're just losing users. One of our biggest competitors that had a significant seed round, I think they were somewhere 20, 30, $40 million. We were trying to move, we saw this coming, we were trying to move fast to Electronic Arts, big game developer. <clears throat> we're trying to sell it to them. Like, let's just, we need to move. And, and our private, the, the banker that was, was representing us, he said, well, what, what can I show them to compare them to? I said, we'll show them this, this site, and which was our big competitor with all the seed money. And he goes, he, went, he said, Ted, I went to go check it out. And uh, it's, it was black screen. Like they just, they pulled the, our biggest competitor with a lot more money in than we had pulled the plug. Wow. And after that, it was just a quest. It was just a matter of time. Yeah. So that was number. Crazy. Yeah. So, so that basically marked the beginning and end of this business. What was the time period between starting and realizing it was over? Three years. Three, Three years. years, which yeah. which I think is kind of an admirable trait, right? To look around and go, we tried and it's done now. Are you oversimplifying that? Was there a lot of personal turmoil, pain, retrenchments, investors you let down, or how did that go down? Oh, Nick, it was, it, it was it, first of all, was the really the first failure, right? And so it was, just, well, hold on a sec. And, but the stakes were higher. So it was this... Mm kind of fucked up combination that occurred there. Yeah. What was really challenging is in addition to our own funding, I had a I had a I had a creative director as my partner and he was responsible for bringing in one major investor. I was responsible for bringing in one major investor. And it, and it was kind of that those relationships that really got strained towards the end. And there, I even remember that I remember a meeting when we we're in, meeting in one of the investors' offices, and the four of us were there talking about well, what do we do. And Nick, this is this is sort of one of those crucible moments where they were ready to put in more money. It was it was just a question of well, hold on a second, we're already already this far in. Maybe what's it going to take to and. I just, it, it, I, I felt like there's nothing. This is gonna, there isn't anything we're going to be able to do here because we just missed a cycle is, is what mm -hmm. happened. And that was really hard. And so my director partner, he kind of disappeared for years, pulled off a lot of profiles online and just mm -hmm. was gone. And, and, it, and I had to work hard to try to just build back that in my own head. I think these were investors that understood there are risks. But it's, it's, it's so hard when it, you know, the personal side of it, and you feel like a failure and you let people down. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs.
Yeah, absolutely. For some broader context here, so this is 2008-9. How old are you at this period? And was this particular failure financially crippling for you? Or was it more of an emotional, holy crap, this is my first failure. How do I emerge from this? So doing some quick math on it, I would have been late 30s. Okay. Late 30s, early, yeah, right around 40. And it wasn't... It wasn't financially crippling, but what it was, Nick, is the the opportunity cost and the implications of the decisions to come, I think, made it worse, actually, right? Made it worse because it... it, it was sort of this, you're still alive, but you're you're really behind now. A lot of the financial profit from the previous success is gone. So it was sort of like this, well, now it's a restart, but, but in a weird way. So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, part. I'm interested in that statement that I'm really behind now. And the, I mean, you're going to ask where I'm going with this, but like on whose measure and in comparison to what? Like, what were you behind on? I had this idea of of where I should be at a, at, a, at, a, at a financial stage, at that stage in my life. And I was comparing to some of these other entrepreneurs, right? And comparing, this was also coming right off the heels of the dot-com bubble. And watching some just crazy stories, no revenue, right? We've and now it's going to happen again, and it's happening again right now. But it, it was—I just remember watching and hearing all these stories of this entrepreneur getting bought out by this Microsoft, by this company, and 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 I'm literally close friends, and this was happening to, and and now I'm I'm looking back and going, wow, there was these exits that are happening all around me. And, and I just, I figured, well, I'm as, I'm as smart as that person. I'm, I'm working just as hard and yeah, it was, it was really, really emotionally taxing because I was my, by my own measure and comparing to others, I was behind. And you're also uh, at that time, 2008, nine in the depths of the great recession and watching companies like Uber, Airbnb, uh, Groupon all emerge at this time and raising insane amounts of money off the back of a recession. It was a very strange time to be in tech. Yeah, it, it really was. And you know what the interesting thing too, Nick, is we, towards the end, we actually were spending a lot of time in, in Silicon Valley. And and once you're in, it's, it's actually a very small community. And once you're in the ecosystem, you can see absolutely is set up to propel these organizations, like from the law firms to the, 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 the VCs themselves. Every night of the week, there's some kind of hookup where you can go and yep. you'll see these really cool. What I found with it, though, it was almost like this utopia. It was utopian. Mm. It, 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 we were so encouraged with our idea. Here's our idea. Here's what we want to do. And we had, oh, this is going to be, this is amazing. This is amazing. There was absolutely no doubt that, that any idea that you took there was going to be successful. There was just this, this, this culture of, oh, 
just just you being here means you're going to be successful. So, <laughs> which is incredible, but also frightening because it's untrue. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. It's an incredible Silicon Valley has emerged as this wonderful time and place that changed the face of the world, but is now not necessarily the way to do things. So there is this very interesting balance that's struck on that. And I mean, I'm sure you and I can have a whole podcast just on Silicon Valley and the value of striving for a unicorn, but let's not do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <you're right. laughs> and mainly because you've got two other businesses. So before yeah. we move on to the other two businesses, what I want to ask you about this particular business, because I've actually interviewed Trip Hawkins on one of my old podcasts before the founder of EA Sports, so mm -hmm. EA Generity. And uh, the question I want to ask you, because video games are hard, just generally, is what did you learn from this particular business that you've carried with you? Or what was the main lesson from that business that's going to start building this pattern for us? What I, what I learned specifically and technically from this is, well, number one, fail fast, right? We've, we've probably heard this before, fail fast. But, but here, I'll, I'll add something, fail faster, because we had this MVP, minimal viable product, agile development that was happening, and we were moving fast. We still were too perfectionist. We, we still were waiting too long before we would get, get different features and, and really understanding what our users were, were looking for. And so I think we could have moved a lot quicker with just put something out there. It may look like crap, but at least we'll see how somebody's, and it was too functional, too functional, too, too fast. So, I mean, uh, that, that was also very much a way of building of that time. We emerged from the web two movement in like 2002, three, four into 2008, where it was like, oh, let's make things pretty. Let's, we've got this great UX, user experience was this new word, user interface, UIs. So I think you caught up in that, especially in the video game world. But what you say is so important. And it's something that I hammer down for entrepreneurs all the time is I, I call bullshit on this idea that we're perfectionists. I think everybody who likes to say that they're a perfectionist likes to use that as an excuse not to put stuff out there. Because if you were a perfectionist, you would fundamentally not be able to get up in the morning mm -hmm. because no human is actually perfect. Nothing you do is right. We just iterate quicker than we realize we failed. And that makes us perceive that we are perfect and it's a lie. So I love that first bit of advice. So now let's drag us forward to which mm -hmm. year when this next business is coming together. So now coming off of this, and I should say there was a there was some there was some outside or I guess internal pressure with this too, Nick. When I started that first office equipment business, which I still had ownership in, I had a couple of partners in that business. My job was to diversify us, and so I started not only to feel the pressure of the people that were involved with the video game, but also these partners that were somewhat supporting financially the any other new idea. So, so your existing and profitable business that you were actually an owner in was also funding these new ventures to diversify the bottom line of that company. Correct. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yes, correct. And that also came with its own set of the, the saying, hungry dogs run fast. Mm. Mm. There's a little bit too, well, we've got this safety net over here. So how fast do we really need to run? So that's, that also yeah. could probably be a podcast on its own. Yeah. And so I felt really compelled to, to move, to move quickly, to try to, to let's, let's just put, let's just put that failure in the past and, and move on. So I had always had an interest in real estate and land development. 
And this is now right around 2011. And what was happening is, is a lot of the older neighborhoods were starting to regentrify, right? So they were tearing down these post-war homes and, and putting up these new modern modern homes, more to the center. The suburbia was starting to contract. Then of course, COVID came and suburbia became popular again, but it was at this time, it was, it was contracting. So I was watching all of these large developers that were building homes and what they would do, they would take greenfield development in these suburbs and they'd buy huge tracts of land. They'd put the, the infrastructure in and then you'd maybe have five or six different home builders that would put their show homes up and say, hey, which lot do you want? And I looked at it and I thought, that's an interesting model, but what if we had a model that you're actually taking advantage of these infill type homes and let's and where there's existing single family homes sitting on them? I said, what, what, what would, why, don't, why not start to buy these, these specific lots all over the city in the places where people want to live, usually by green belts, rivers, et cetera. Sometimes these homes had people living in them for 20, 30 years, for longer. You could do an age in place. You could do lease backs. So here's my visionary dream. We're not going to have the suburb all empty lots that people can pick from. We're going to show them a, uh, an overlay map of the city and say there are 500 lots that we have in all the best spots in the city. Which one do you want? And then we would have a home building company to kind of to, to, so there's two plays, land acquisition, home construction. I understood from some previous things I did, the land acquisition piece, I understood that pretty good. What I had no clue on was, was how to build a home. A person in the office equipment business that previously worked for us years and years ago had successfully started a custom home building company. And he was building at the time, the, he was the, he was by far and away the front runner in modern home build, homes. And he, to give you an idea at that time, the, the average price for, for a single family home was probably running somewhere in the four to 500,000 range, Nick. He was in the 3 million plus when he, what he was doing. And so he had all the right people. He was building a name for himself. And, and we were fortunate in air quote fortunate to partner with him. And so he was going to be the builder, not the 3 million. We were going to make it kind of that one to one and a half million. And the idea was let's do, do our first show home and let's start to acquire this land. So we did that. We started acquiring land. We started to build. And right in the middle of it, the other, the pressures from his business in the, the large custom building he was doing, it turned out he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Oh. And in the middle of this, he went bankrupt. Ah, and where did that leave your partnership? Well, so with the individual that I would, that we were partnered with very quickly realized had to get him off of any legal document we had. So the very thing that tied us to him that, that potentially could have caused him to have to help us get out of this hole was also our Achilles heel and a big liability. Yeah. So we did that and we, you know, we managed to, to remove him from, from the ownership and directorship. Now, of course, that didn't stop some of these owner, some of these owners or home buyers that to, to try to come after us, even though we had nothing sure. to do with that, that his main business. But the real strain it put on was with my, those two partners that I was referring to that from the beginning, 
Because now, Nick, I found myself in a situation where we had all this land, basically mm-hmm. these rental houses that were, were never really designed to rent for a very long time. They were, we were going to be tearing them down. And so we're carrying all of this. And we had a half-finished million-and-a-half-dollar show home. And I had no idea how to build a house. And so, and the trades that we were working with, of course, they hadn't been paid. So it was, it was an absolute, it was an absolute mess. And probably in, from a business sense, the absolute low point in my career. Peace. Yeah, I mean, I, my, the amount I know about real estate is on the tip of my small finger. So that's just intense and brutal. And what year are you now in? So 2008-9, the video game company went bust. Then did yeah. you take a break and then start the real estate thing? Or did you dive right in? Dove right in pretty quick. There, Yeah, that one, yeah, it, it was right on the heels. Yeah, yeah, it was no in, break. In hindsight, do you consider that a rebound business, the retail business? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It was. If you uh, taken a little bit more time, you probably would have found something more in your wheelhouse to go and commit to, right? One hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I've been there. I've been there. Okay. So by this point, your core office equipment business must be getting pretty pissed off with what's going on. (laughs) Can I ask if you don't mind, I mean, you don't have to mention numbers, but how much money have you now lost that you've taken from the office equipment business and put into two quote unquote diversified businesses that didn't work out? I mean, you can be vague, tens of millions, millions, hundreds of thousands. No, no, millions. Yeah, I would say millions. millions. Yeah. Millions of dollars, pretty, not an insignificant amount of money, effort, time, mental health, energy, right? Right, right. Oh, yeah. No, not insignificant whatsoever. And if you look at the timing on us, we're now sitting at, it's now 14, well, 12 years in, 12 or 13 years in. And so, yeah, that that time over that time, how much was definitely, mm. yeah. It, it it by that time it was supposed. As a matter of fact, we weren't even supposed to have the office equipment business anymore because the idea was we had a ten year run at most, and mm. then it's going to run out of. No one's going to use paper anymore. So that was our window. So the pressure. Well, fortunately, well, paper's still happening today, but. That was yeah. pressure because again, it, yeah. all, all three of us were looking at it like, this isn't working, right? Like, yeah. This isn't working. And that's an interesting segue into a question I'd written down earlier. Of the three business partners, why were you chosen to be the one to be innovative and push out and diversify while the other two were operationally still in the other business? Largely the, the nature of our personalities was probably the first thing. So the, in the office equipment business, it, it, I, I started it, the idea I should say, needed both of them, but needed my, needed, brought in one partner, said, hey, we should do this. Yeah, that looks like a great idea. It was in two cities. So one of the partners was the operator in one of the cities and the other was an operator in the other city. So this is where I got myself actually into a position where I was, one step removed from the operations of that business, which would come back to cost me 
when we get to that part. So for me, it was, I never, I didn't want to, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I had been in the industry mm. before, so I knew it. I had gotten out and I had gotten into technology and was doing other things, but I saw it as a bit of a cash cow, stable, mature business to fund these more riskier initiatives. Yeah. And my partners were down for that. And yeah. as I look back and there was some real hard conversations, Nick, as I look back, that I shouldn't have expected anything different as we were kind of navigating through these different businesses. I, I put my hand up and I volunteered to be the visionary, to be the one out there taking the risks. Mm. And so when I would get, when I would start to feel a little bit sorry for myself, when I was trying to start, find new clients in nondescript towns, staying in shitty little hotels while my business partners were golfing, I, I started to build up some resentment. And yeah. I look back on that now and I'm like, well, I'm the one who signed up for that. They, they held up their end of the bargain. They kept the, they kept the, the, the train running. I, have, yeah. I had a, a, a thought it should be growing more. I still felt mm. that that business should, mm. like, it shouldn't just be flat. It should actually so, grow. Yeah. So we had some conflict there. I said, you guys should be doing more to grow this mm. thing. But they said, Ted, what, this is what it is. It is what it is. And I said, well, it's not. It can be more. And they said, well, let's just agree to disagree on that. But Ted, nonetheless, you said you were going to go make us $100 million with, with technology. So stop worrying yeah. about copiers and go make, yeah. some, go make some money. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the real estate business, how, how did you actually get out of that? Did you end up selling all those properties over time? Like, oh, <laughs> Nick, this is, it's the worst possible. It was the worst way to exit anything. I've been married for 26 years and it's, I'm happily married, but I can see how divorces go really wrong really quickly <clears throat> because you, you start to just it gets emotional and irrational and you, the fire sale, that's what we had going on. It was, let's mm. just, let's just get rid of all of this. And the timing wasn't great. The timing, there was just was, post recession. Was, yeah. So that's what we ended up doing. We, we ended up basically having to fire sale. So loss, loss, loss on the real estate. And then at the same time, trying to fund the, the finishing of the show home that we anticipated selling for a million and a half. The, the, our, our cost on it should have been about 800,000, eight to 900,000. We ended up holding it for two years longer because no one was buying. We, I think it was just shy of a million one that we sold it for. And our costs by that time were at least that. And so the, but when it happened finally, Nick, it was so like, I was so relieved. The f I'm sure. So relieved. And what year was it roughly that that ended? 2013, 2013. So now wow, so you really jam packed in, in a five year period, some brutal and intense businesses in across the spectrum, right? From, from video game technology to real estate is quite yeah. a wide spectrum of businesses. Yeah. So with video games and real estate under your belts and office equipment still functioning profitably to fund the third business, what yeah. was that one? 
So this was a... <laughs> and surely I, I, this is the one that your partners were like, it's shit or get off the pot time. <laughs> like, this is the one. <laughs> I think as I think by now, Nick, it was like, it was just watching a train wreck in slow motion. It was now what, right? Now what? And and they were doing everything they could to support, but I could feel, I could, it just was, it was, it was dysfunctional yeah. now. So again, you say call it rebound business. It's another one, sort of grasping at straws. So the 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 next business, <laughs> which I had no business being in as I look at it, I managed to get myself involved with a, a new, <laughs> uh, don't chuckle on this. Well, I'll tell you this before. I, I barely got through high, any of the sciences in, in high school. Okay. So just a biology, chemistry, physics. I'd you and drop. me. Yeah. So, so what do I find myself in starting a business in a nuclear medicine? Sure. Right. Because sure, why not? Why not? What could go wrong with, with that? I, I connected with some researchers that were, were science, legit scientists and, and a university that had funded to this, this point about $40 million, a novel technology to produce a radioisotope called technetium. And the reason this was, was so important is the government of Canada in the, I think, 50s and 60s became one of the major global suppliers for this isotope that is used for cancer diagnostics, other types of tracing. So they inject a little, a small microdose of it, and then they scan you with a camera and see, is the cancer in remission? What's going on? And the reason that Canada was one of the global suppliers is because you use, you use nuclear, they used a nuclear reactor to do it. And so the, that reactor was getting old. And so there was a lot of funding put in place to come up with a new type of technology. Plus, the Americans were not happy shipping highly enriched uranium around the world for obvious reasons. So this is the funniest thing. Canada would mine low enriched uranium, ship it to the U.S. They would enrich it, send it back to Canada, used in this reactor to create this medicine. So okay. there was a time when they were supplying about 40% of the globe with this. And there was a disruption actually that occurred, I forget the year, that was a major health crisis when, when this couldn't happen. So these researchers created a way to produce this locally rather than centrally and then ship it around the world. And they used a, a machine called the cyclotron, which accelerates protons. And their, the, their research was about a, uh, there was a target that you would bombard with, with this, with this cyclotron and it would radiate. Okay. And then you could get whatever this medicine, this, this isotope to a local hospital. So we had a business model where we were going to have a globally distributed network of cyclotrons. We would provide, it was almost like the razor and the blade. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were going to supply essentially the, the, the blades and ship them around the world and, uh, and we would recycle them. We could actually recycle some of the, some of, of the spent radiation. So it was safe and it was, it was environmentally friendly and it was solving a problem. So it was a, it was, this was a billion, multi-billion dollar idea, Nick. What I, so that, what I, 
didn't anticipate, and we had protection. It was global protection. We had the patents. We, what I didn't anticipate was the appetite that universities, because the way it worked is the universities had a, a third of the IP, the, the inventors had a third, and then the company would have a third. And the universities had a veto on how aggressively we would go to market. And so their, their appetite for, for risk, and, and I, as I've learned, their, their biggest, one of their biggest assets is their reputation, and they will not jeopardize it for any amount of money. And uh, so. Wow. How on earth did you come across this business? <laughs> so, so in my brief stopover from the real estate to, as we were trying to figure out what to do, sell all these properties, I figured I, I had to, I had to at least at least pay for myself while this was going on. And so I took a gig as a, they call it an, an entrepreneur or an executive in residence. Have you mm -hmm. heard of this? Yeah. Yep, so I, an entrepreneur so I, in residence, yes. Yeah, a little, a little incubator, right? The mm. kind of government funded incubator. Well, they just happened to have this connection to the university and, and, and the, the project sponsor, I guess, for this, got connected with me and so they initially retained me as their executive in, in residence and then I said well there's let's get this business going and so that's and he was happy to let this crazy business guy run with getting this company set up doing everything needed while they were doing their research and so that's yeah yeah I got serendipitously connected to this group that way okay and then the appetite for risk is not there. The no. universities then veto a lot of the advertising and marketing and the business can't get legs. So it folds. Basically. Yeah, it, it stalls. And what ended up happening is, of course, it takes a while to get a novel technology. This what we just yeah. la lately saw with these vaccines is unprecedented. That, that wasn't yeah. how it worked, right? So you needed clinical trials. You needed all of that to happen. And so we were... We were working to that. What started, what we started to see though, was that other countries were, they were watching Canada. They were watching us. Like, are you going to get it together? And around the same time that we were going too slow with all of the pushing the technology, pushing the, if you, as we've seen, if you want to get something to market quick, even in healthcare, you can, we yeah. just, we just weren't pushing. So two new two startups in in the US that were using low enriched uranium which is terrible for the environment but were able to start producing this they filled a supply chain gap mm. and then we also saw actually South Africa is one of the major centers for this with a reactor as well as France so we saw these other countries actually start to create nuclear capacity from their reactors. And it's a real shame, Nick, because this was a, a very safe method, a very environmentally friendly method. And, and so the facility's still there. The cyclotron's still there. Wow. I think it's just used for research now is where that hmm. ended up. So interesting. The, the pivotal 
observation from my perspective here is the original profitable office supply business. And <laughs> it, it's the most relatable part of the story. And I relate to you as an entrepreneur very closely because my entrepreneurial career has been from manufacturing socks in a factory that I owned sock machines and learned how to do that from scratch, running e-commerce businesses, building high technology, starting a social network, all sorts of crazy shit. <laughs> so... This is an insanely interesting story to me, and the questions are really centered on going back to this focus of the office supply business, and as entrepreneurs, our need to kind of prove ourselves is something we're not. So you were a successful entrepreneur in the office supply space business, and you thought to yourself, can I do this again? Is there something else in me that makes me an quote unquote entrepreneur? Was that your motivation? Like, what was your motivation to go and do all of these things and basically for a decade bump your head against technologies you didn't understand? And yeah, I think it was, Nick, I, I, was this idea that it maybe office equipment isn't sexy. It's as weird as that. Oh, sound. I know that feeling. Oh, yeah. I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it was somewhat limited. We, we, we had a major partner, right? The, made, the manufacturer was a major partner. And so there was some limits to our, for, for our free. So, you know, as you asked, I've never been asked that question before. And I think I have the answer. Mm. I think in that business, I felt like half an entrepreneur. Okay. Unpack that for me. Because I, I know that, I know what that means to me. What does it mean to you? There was a product <clears throat> that was already created. We didn't, we didn't invent it. We didn't, we didn't invent geography. It, and, and there was well-established marketing channels, well-established distribution channels. We just had to successfully find people that could sell it and support them in their careers in selling it. And okay. it was almost like, here's the rule book, here's, here, or here's the playbook that's already been established, just go out and execute the X's and the O's and you'll be successful. So not fully franchise, but yeah. not far off of it. Yeah. And yeah that, that, that is an interesting and astute observation. And it's something that I have been battling with for many, many years with lots of different entrepreneurs. The conversation of is what's the difference between an entrepreneur and a business owner? And I think you are kind of playing in that world now. And it's a question that's come up with a few of my guests. And the, as close as I've gotten to this, here's how I see this. Entrepreneurs introduce innovations, something new into the world, and they take that innovation and turn it into something that makes money. Whereas a business owner uses something that exists already to make money. The example I always use is the person who started McDonald's, entrepreneur. The person who runs a McDonald's is a business owner. There is a template that you know how to run a McDonald's. You're a business owner. You can still screw it up, but you're a business yeah. owner. The person who created the franchise model for McDonald's, the one who started the first McDonald's, is the entrepreneur. And you, it seems, were battling with, I am not an innovative, sexy, cool Silicon Valley entrepreneur. I am just a profitable business, business owner. And the sad thing for me, Ted, is there are too many young entrepreneurs looking for sexy and not profit. Yeah, Nick, I agree. I think your definition is actually, it, it may be offending some listeners, Nick. Oh, frankly, it definitely right? is. Oh, it definitely is. It's not right and it's not refined. It's just where I am right now on this evolution of 
why people like you, smart, profitable, successful entrepreneurs, look yeah. inwards and go, oh, but shit, I'm not good enough. It's not yeah. enough. Yeah, I, I, I would, yeah, I would, <clears throat> I think there's, if looking at an, at an entrepreneur or an innovator, inventor, visionary, right? Mm -hmm. Just someone that they, they absolutely feel like they've got to, there's something they need to, to introduce to the world, right? There's something that, and, and they're going to, they're going to do it or they're going to die trying, right? They really are going to, it's not about the profit necessarily. It's not even, it's not about the money. It's just, I've got this idea. It has to be successful mm. compared to, yeah, business, business owners that, that in their own right are very savvy. They understand how to yeah. build and grow businesses Nothing to be but scoffed they, at. No, 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 not, not at all. Yeah. But it is, it is very different. It's very different. And, and arguably it's a, it's, it's the rare individual that can do both well. Yeah, I, I would yeah. agree with that definitely. But Ted, I do want to push forward now and close off some of the open threads we've got. So you started by saying there were three businesses and you think yeah. that there's a pattern. So talk to me about that pattern before I ask you a final few questions. Yeah, so I think there's a pattern of at least in my my history is those first. There, I didn't mention. Well, I, I think I did in the middle of this. So there was the office equipment business. There was the the the, the educational software, and right in the middle of that, there was a kind of a merger with, a, with an IT managed services company. Okay. So those those three distinct businesses all were successful. And then the ne then the run of the next three, the video game, the real estate, and the nuclear business, mm. all failed. Mm -hmm. And so I see it as this this interesting this interesting rule of threes. It it took who knows maybe it was blind luck the first three right maybe maybe the first three fell and the next three are the successful ones. But it was almost like if you're gonna be for me if you're gonna think serially. And I'm not even sure if one, if that first, that second, the educational business, even if it, I mean, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't sell for fuck you money. Right. But even if it did, I think there'd still be another, like, okay, now what? Right. So now I'm, I seem to be in this, in this cycle of the, the next business after the, the nuclear business was successful. And now I'm starting another one. So I guess it's my, I'm in number two of the next, of, of the, the next third cycle. group of threes. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. So what, what I wanted to ask, and it's a question I'm finding more interesting to ask entrepreneurs. And I think in this conversation, it's more relevant because I think what, what you and I are actually having a conversation about is self-worth. So right now, where do you derive your self-worth from? Because for the, the three failures, you were trying to establish yourself as an innovator. And that's where you wanted your self-worth to derive from. When you actually had a profitable, sustainable business that paid for your lifestyle and you were worthy and not maybe to yourself. Yeah. So right now, in, with hindsight and where you are in the world, where does your self-worth come from? The success of others. Nailed it. Lovely. Yeah, that's that, that's the answer I get from mature entrepreneurs more often than not is enabling other people to be successful makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah, nothing yeah. like it. It's amazing. Yeah. And are you working on something right now that is doing that? 
Yeah, well, so I, I hope so. I mean, the first, where I found, I think my, where I found my calling, Nick, happened after the, the, after the nuclear business. When I, and, and by the way, <clears throat> that, that office equipment business is still thriving today. Wow. I'm not involved in it anymore. So are you, yeah. are you a shareholder? Not anymore. Uh, okay. So you've exited. You mentioned earlier on how your partners must be getting pissed off by now. Well, yeah. they finally had enough. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> after the nuclear business, that was it. The nuclear business, the real estate, that was it. They had had enough. Yeah. And did so they was, buy out your shares? They did after a lot of nasty, a lot of nasty okay. back and forth. It was ugly. Friendships were, were permanently damaged. I didn't think the, the number was fair. They thought it was more than fair. It ended up two of them, one of me. It got legal before it got settled and it was terrible. Yeah. When you look at contracts, the partnerships over. It was terrible. It was terrible. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but I've never met a business owner without a founder story like that one. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's almost like the, it's a little bit like the chrysalis. You sort of now, yep. now you're free a bit, right? And both yep. parties, both parties are free. Yep. And so it allowed me to, to I said, I'm, not, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to become this, I'm going to, I'm going to become a business coach. And so that's, I started to implement a business system called the Entrepreneurial Operating System based off a book called Traction. And I've been doing that for six years. And that's really, Nick, where I saw for the first time, probably, the, that I was really adding value to the people that I was working with and changing their lives. And it just filled me up so much that to answer your question, yes. And I'm, I'm, it's still a very big part of what I do. I don't foresee not doing it ever because I just love it. However, hopefully I'm not breaking it by now trying to extend. So where, where, the, where EOS helps entrepreneurs and their leadership teams, what I've recognized is once the system and their hard work gets their business under control, it now creates this opening for them to start to think about getting their lives under control because often they've neglected everything but their business yep. and that's now where i'm hoping to extend but and the same thing's kind of at play you got me thinking about this this half entrepreneur comment that i made with the office equipment i think there's a little bit of that with eos because again it's not my ip it's a it's a system god bless gino wickman he did a great job in what he created and i'm and i'm i'm leveraging it but it isn't mine and so that's a little bit, I think, of what's driving me now. Could I have this same impact on helping people succeed with something that I actually brought birthed into the world? It is such an extremely tricky one. And I speak from personal experience and from having watched many friends of mine exit at multiple $10, $100 million businesses. That feeling that you're describing doesn't go away. It doesn't change. It doesn't change whether you exit for a hundred million or a billion, whether you build something of your own or sell somebody else's. I've got friends who are happy. One of the episodes I've just finished editing, the guy is a software business that he sells other people's software. 
in mm. a market nobody has sold it in. That's it. And he's happy because he built it from scratch, even though he's selling somebody else's product. Whereas you would do that and you would be unsatisfied because it wasn't your software you were selling. So I think it is a personal boundary of where we get our self-worth from. And that's why that question to me has become super important to entrepreneurs who are trying to change the world when what they're looking at is external validation for an internal whole. And I think that this is the the conversation about life is where do we derive our self-worth from? Is it from making other people feel successful? If that's the case, then Ted, you're doing a good job and you have been for six years and you don't need your own system because you're helping other people build businesses. If, however, you want to create something from scratch, then great. But just be aware of where that self-worth is coming from because it can be manipulative and destructive. Yeah, yeah, Nick, yeah, I, I I love that. I, I love it. I, you, I, I think the asking the question why, and I, and I, I also a big part of what I'm maybe this might be when I'm looking at my clients right now, and you've got me thinking again. It's it in some cases I think I'm projecting myself onto them. They've had this successful business. They. You know, well, now there must be an empty space. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then that also feeds your imposter syndrome, right? Like, because I've, I've got a few of my own coaching clients and you think to yourself, how can I be coaching this person if they've built this business and I never have? Like they've done yeah. this thing that I just can't do. So that imposter syndrome maybe is also a version of you talking about half an entrepreneur. That's partly half imposter syndrome. Like, why am I not better at this? Or why is this not making me a bajillionaire? so difficult to unpack all these things yeah yeah it, it, it well you can you can really twist yourself up with it you can yeah. uh, and it's oh boy what a there's just something there's just something liberating for for those that i think as you explore it nick as you explore this whole idea of the why if you are if you want to be an entrepreneur if you want to be a business owner if you really ask the question why yeah and really get get into it cuz it is not easy and and it's there's no roadmap and it can leave a path of destruction in its wake but i also at the same time i believe that the the solution to many of our global ills will be the entrepreneur that solves it and so we need them absolutely but yeah, we also I absolutely agree. To, yeah. And I have one final question and then I will give you the floor to promote that book that is in the background that I've been staring at for an hour. The question <laughs> I want to ask you is if you had to look back on those experiences, those failures, the difficult times, what is the one piece of advice you would give to yourself if you were to go back? Oh boy. <clears throat> um, be, be, be true to oneself be true to yourself i look back at i got myself into into partnerships into business opportunities that really weren't weren't once i got into it i it wasn't me it, it wasn't me and it, had i gotten in touch with that much much sooner i would have i would have saved a lot of other people a lot of heartache nick so, yeah, I know that feeling yeah, well. Yeah. It's and I know it's good not advice. a question to answer, but 
inspect yeah. that all all time and don't be afraid to don't be afraid to say i can't do this that might yep. be another one yep yep my i've said this a lot on this show my career from my 20 from the age 20 to 36 35 was defined by the things i didn't say no to mm -hmm. yeah things i just should have said no to that's it. Okay. So now finally, the floor is yours. Please tell us about your book. Tell us where people can find you to get coached or to buy from you or to follow you. The floor is yours. Take it away. Yes. So thank you, Nick. So two things, very much still uh, expert EOS implementer, implementing EOS. So if anyone's interested in that, uh, you can, you know, eosworldwide.com, you can find me. But the best way to get to me is at tedbradshaw.com. My book, aptly named Stop Chasing Squirrels, Six Essentials to Find Your Purpose, Focus, and Flow. Hopefully in one small way, trying to solve the issues that I've been through over the past 20 years is available on Amazon, best place to get it. Uh, Ebook, uh, audio book, uh, the, the physical copies. And yeah, it's, it's for uh, high achievers, uh, entrepreneurs, and leaders uh, that, uh, that, that maybe have been chasing a, a, a squirrel or two more than they should be uh, to help them, you know, find some peace. So that's my latest uh, uh, project and uh, really appreciate you giving me a, a venue to share my, share the scars because it's all Amazing. led to this. It's all led to yep. this, which I'm thrilled about. Well, Ted, I love the title of that book and I'm really excited to say that for you and your entrepreneurial journey, it's not over. I love it. Nick, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun and a little bit therapeutic at the same time. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs>